A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The latest from 7 News with Michael Usher. Good evening and welcome. Tonight, Melbourne's triple hit. Lockdown, protests and now that earthquake. We're live there. How a veteran was fined after begging with protesters to respect the city's shrine of remembrance. The Sydney Hospital trying to tackle several outbreaks at once. And WA's COVID scare ahead of the AFL Grand Final will cross to Perth. But first, Melbourne has been warned to brace for more aftershocks after that earthquake measuring 5.9 hit the city this morning. Our reporter Sarah Jones is live in Melbourne. Now, Sarah, good evening to you. Now, the greatest impact, it was felt about 180 kilometres from the epicentre. Good evening, Michael. Thousands of people right across Victoria felt this earthquake at 9.15 this morning. Behind me on Chapel Street, this building was one of many that was badly damaged by this earthquake, but the epicentre was actually in the state's high country near Mansfield. Now, thankfully, no one was actually injured, but many were actually just left in shock, not being able to understand how something like this could actually happen here in Victoria. Now, now, six aftershocks have since been reported since that initial quake and our experts tell us that these will continue for weeks, if not months to come, but we're less likely to feel them. Extremely lucky that no one was injured, that's for sure, Sarah. Now, the earthquake was not the only event to shake the city today. The protesters, they were back. They took to the streets for the third day, congregating at the Shrine of Remembrance. Now, here's the CEO of that war memorial reacting to today's scenes. Frankly, I'm speechless and appalled at what we're seeing here. I cannot comprehend the selfishness of people who would come to this sacred place and do this to Victoria's Shrine of Remembrance. It's outrageous, it's reprehensible, and it's the most disgusting behaviour I could ever imagine witnessing here at the Shrine of Remembrance. Rightly very moved today. So, Sarah, what happened? Michael, protesters roamed the city for hours today before finally settling at the shrine. Police say today there were less tradies there and actually more anti-lockdown protesters and anti-vaxxers. Three police members were actually injured during today's protests. Two of them had bottles thrown at their heads and more than 200 people were arrested and they'll be fined for breaching the Chief Health Officer's directions. There's certainly outrage tonight over an infringement fine issued to a gentleman called Wade Harrison. He was wearing his medals. We believe he is a veteran. Have a look at this video. All I'm asking is just respect the soldiers. Can you please, can you please come over and get off there? That's all I'm asking. Come on, guys. I stand here by myself. No one else behind me. I just want to know, can you please just respect the soldiers in the fallen? All right, that was an interesting moment. I understand he might be attached to the Hawthorne RSL. Sarah, what do we know at this stage? 
Yes, Michael. Well, this veteran, he was wearing his medals proudly and he was there at the shrine today, but he wasn't there to protest. He was there to tell the protesters that they shouldn't be demonstrating on sacred land, but then he too was fined more than $5,000. Now, his supporters tell me tonight that they are rallying behind him and they will help fundraise the money to help pay that fine. Michael? All right, let's see what Vic Police have to say about that in the morning as well. Could be an oversight. Sarah Jones in Melbourne, thank you. We've heard reports of the tremor being felt right throughout the state's southeast corner. So why and how did the shake travel so far? Tanya Page is a seismologist with Geoscience Australia, joins us now. Tanya, hello to you. Now, what was it about this particular quake which gave it such force over such a distance? So primarily it's magnitude, right? So the magnitude was initially, um, we had a preliminary magnitude of uh, six. Since since then we've revised it to a 5.9, uh, which still makes it the largest earthquake uh, recorded in the Southeast Australia and most certainly in Victoria. Uh, earthquakes of this size are commonly felt across large distances. This is observed all over the world and Australia is um, not an exception. And as you mentioned, so this was widely felt across Victoria, New South Wales and Tasmania. Uh, up till um, the time that we speak to each other, um, we have received, so Geoscience Australia has received more than 38,000 felt reports from the community. Well, there you go. So its reach was far and wide. Um, look, help me understand this, the, the geology of Australia, because I don't quite understand it. As I best know, regional Victoria doesn't sit across two tectonic plates. So where did the earthquake come from? I know that's such a basic question, but could you help us understand? Absolutely, I can try. Um, so uh, you are correct. So Australia doesn't sit between uh, two tectonic plates or even more so Victoria doesn't sit on the edge of two plates. The whole of continent of Australia sits in a single plate, uh, which is one of the fastest moving tectonic plates in the world. So mm. it moves at a rate of approximately eight centimetres per year towards north, northeast, so towards Papua New Guinea and Indonesia. Um, this exerts forces on the continent, um, which basically reactivates some of the older faults that have, you know, that been in existence since ancient times, and I'm talking hundreds of millions of years ago. So as these forces are exerted uh, across the continent, these faults are reactivated, um, and we just have we just record uh, a deformation across them, a slip right. across these faults, which is perceived then as an earthquake. Now, early reports, and perhaps it still is the case, it was 10 kilometres beneath the surface. Is that accurate? And what difference does that make to the way this earthquake was felt? So there are uncertainties uh, related with the earthquake location, depth and magnitude. Um, we don't have what we refer to as the ground truth for any earthquake. This is for Australia, for the world. Um, we simply, we, we can't give you an exact you know, time, location and the uh, magnitude of any earthquake that ever occurred. Um, so what we can say is that earthquake was shallow. So we've had a preliminary estimate of around 10 kilometres, but we can't really give you the exact number, I'm afraid. All right. Well, some sceptics today, and there were a few that said it's no way it could have rattled Sydney or Adelaide or Tasmania, uh, given that some in, in other parts of regionally Victoria didn't feel it. But explain how that works. 
Well, I would say that the images speak for themselves. Yeah. Um, we can definitely say that um, the pe people have felt it uh, across uh, three states and your footage there shows uh, the aftermath of the shaking. So I think it's, it would be, be hard-pressed uh, to, to tell that we, we no one has felt it yeah. or it couldn't have uh, been felt so far. Um, look, this is fairly normal. So like I said, earthquakes of, of this size, um, they the, the energy that is released is just enormous and it propagates through uh, the crust in every direction. It's like throwing a stone into the water and you've got concentric circles going out. This is very similar to that, except it's in the crust. And that energy, as it propagates through, that's what people feel. And it's really really normal for earthquakes of this size to be felt so yeah. uh, so far away. Tanya, if it's an old uh, fault line or fault system of some kind, does it indicate some further activity coming along? So we will most definitely be recording aftershocks over the next coming uh, weeks, uh, months, possibly even years. They will decrease in size and, and in frequency as we go forward in time. So far, we already have uh, seven aftershocks uh, recorded. Uh, the largest of those was a magnitude 4 and a magnitude 3.5. They were within about 20 minutes of the initial shock. Um, and the rest of them are, are smaller than that. So we will definitely see more activity across the following days in that same area. All right. It's very interesting. And thank you for explaining exactly what went on today as well. We're all very keen to know. Tanya Page from no Geoscience Australia. Thanks a lot for that. Thank you. If you've noticed some cracks or serious damage to your home or business following the Victoria earthquake, tonight's the time to check if you're covered by insurance. Network Finance Editor Gemma Acton's here to have a talk about this. Gemma, good evening to you. Now, in these dangerous circumstances, uh, circumstances, the insurers always say safety first, but then what should those affected be doing? Well, put together as good a file as possible. Uh, you really want to get your insurance claim in as soon as possible, but like everything in life, make sure you're prepared. So collect any receipts, take any photographs, if there are samples left over from things that have been ruined, make sure they go into the file as well. For a situation like an earthquake where there are bound to be many people affected, obviously the queues are quite a bit longer, so the better file you put together, the more chance you have of getting a quicker payout and a payout that's commensurate with the damage yeah. that you've suffered. The comparison site finder had a look at the policies. What did they discover? They looked at 11 policies, Michael, and they found that policyholders are really well covered when it comes to earthquakes. The main difference was how long the exclusion period is, so how long you have to wait after taking out cover uh, if an event happens. In the best case scenario, it was three days. The worst case scenario, it was a week, so you would have been incredibly unlucky if you only took it out in the last couple of days and were affected now. But on the whole, uh, most people will be able to claim for it. All right, Jim, thank you. Thanks, Michael. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Well, a family is tonight mourning the loss of a mother and two of her children killed in a crash on the New South Wales Central Coast. Samantha Smith and five of her eight children were inside the car when it rolled down an embankment. A passing driver who stopped to help accidentally hit a child who'd been thrown from the car. 
Child rapist and former NRL star Jared Hayne is now being sued by his victim for damages. Hayne's lawyers have hit back calling the civil case embarrassing and flawed. A court ruled today Hayne's criminal appeal must be heard before this new lawsuit can begin. Sydney's Liverpool Hospital is tackling multiple outbreaks with several staff members testing positive, many more now in isolation. Serena Andaloro is at the hospital right now. Serena, good evening. What do we know? Michael, good evening to you. There have been six what they're calling exposure events here at Liverpool Hospital over the past week over across a number of wards. Uh, 13 patients and two staff in the orthopaedics ward, two patients and staff in the um, renal ward, neurology, geriatrics, cardio and a nurse in ICU. Now contact tracing is underway to ensure, uh, well to try and determine the source of this outbreak but the hospital insists it has proper infection control measures in place to make sure that it doesn't spread further. Liverpool Hospital of course one of so many hospitals yeah. across Sydney under incredible strain at the moment. Uh, so much so doctors, nurses, psychologists, even dentists who are retired are being called up and enlisted um, to help the pandemic fight in the weeks to come. The, the health system is um, set to face its toughest few weeks yet. Indeed, and Liverpool Hospital is a vital one there, so we hope that is addressed pretty quickly. Mm. Serena, also a new vaccine passport is on the way for New South Wales. What's that about? Yeah, Michael, it's the flip side of all this, isn't it? Um, Freedom Day is set to come on October 11, maybe even earlier, maybe even a week earlier. But the government hasn't yet been able to integrate uh, its Service New South Wales app, which is, of course, the app that we use to check in everywhere with our vaccination passport. So it means if you want to go to a pub, you'll have to check in via the Service New South Wales app, but then you'll also have to show proof of double-dose vaccination via Medicare. But at this point, Michael, gosh, they can have my passport, they can have my birth certificate, my <laughs> library card if they want. Yeah, hey, you're, you you're, prepared, you're prepared to hand it all over, aren't you, Serena? Fair enough. <laughs> They'll get that oh, app worked aren't out. we all? Yeah. Good on you, Serena. Thank you for that. A COVID-positive TV crew member who travelled around the northern New South Wales region has been charged with breaching health orders. Our reporter Ned Barnes in Brisbane tonight. Ned, hello to you. What do we know about this situation? Well, Michael, we know the 31-year-old woman breached her conditions of being in the region when she visited a number of venues while infectious. On top of that, she failed to check in at those venues and as a result, she faces five counts of failing to register as well as another charge that's come in just tonight of failing to correctly apply to her permit. Now, she was allowed to be working. She had an exemption. She was part of the crew working on Channel 10's I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Now, yes, it is reality TV, but unfortunately the reality for people in Byron and Tweed at the moment is that they are in lockdown as a result of these breaches. As for Queensland and the border bubble, well, there were changes at 1am. Basically, people in those two LGAs, well, they're only allowed into the state for very, very restricted um, essential reasons, not many reasons, to be honest. Uh, and so essentially, and on top of that, anyone who has been in those areas from September 18th, well, regardless of where they are, they are being asked to apply to the New South Wales stay-at-home rules. Meanwhile, Ned, the uh, Queensland Premier's reignited a row with federal health authorities on the subject of unvaccinated children. Just take a listen to what she said earlier. I was loudly criticised from all sections of the media. I was attacked relentlessly by the federal government. And today and yesterday we hear that Greg Hunt is now speaking with the TGA to run 
um, analysis of the trials of 5 to 11s which Pfizer has been conducting. I would like an apology from Greg Hunt. All right, Ned, interesting. Seems that the Premier is not going to let this one go easily. Yeah, that seems uh, highly doubtful. Remember, just three weeks ago, the Premier was uh, widely panned. She was called an alarmist and even a fear monger by some people. But when she said that any unvaccinated child remains at risk if we were to open up the country. So still plenty of tension up here, despite the fact that Queensland only registered one new locally acquired case today. And they really aren't that worried about that. So the state government now all eyes south of the border to make sure nothing else pops yeah. up, especially with a number of big events coming up up that nobody really wants to see impacted by COVID, most notably River Fire. That's this Saturday, the big fireworks spectacular that brings a lot of people down to the river. And then, of course, the NRL Grand Final a week after the historic one at Suncorp Stadium. So for now, all eyes on the border to make sure nothing happens there. And of course, the message is always get vaccinated while we have the chance. Well, the vaccination rates are doing pretty well, so it should allay some of the Premier's fears, I think. All right, Ned Baum in Brisbane, thank you. AFL Grand Final preparations have been rocked tonight by a COVID scare in Perth. Let's go to our reporter, Jeff Parry, in Perth, who's been following the story tonight. Jeff, good day to you. What do we know? Well, we know that we're desperate to put on a really great grand final here since it was awarded to us by the AFL, and that includes with crowds. What's happened is that we've had a couple of truck drivers uh, drive over the South Australian, West Australian border, coming into Western Australia from New South Wales. Uh, they were only here for two days. Uh, we know that there are about five um, exposure sites so far before they left Western Australia, drove back to New South Wales where they were tested, and one of the drivers tested positive, the other one tested negative, which is a, a good sign. But as you know, Michael, we're quite quick to lock down here in Western Australia when we get a whiff of COVID. You'll remember the Western Derby back in May where they were turning around 40,000 people away from the gates as they were turning up for the game because we had three COVID cases. It's unlikely that they would pull, pull the trigger that quickly this time. So at the moment, they're treating it as a, a low-key event. Um, they're doing a lot of contact tracing, and we'll see what happens in the next couple of days. But at the moment, mm. the police commissioner is telling us there will be no change to the arrangements for the grand final at this point. Here he is. When you are attending there, if you've got a ticket, that's good. But what we do want you to do from a public safety point of view uh, is take the time to go there early and expect that there may be some delays. Obviously it's a full house. Uh, what we don't want is people in a crowd crush going in at the last minute. This is a unique opportunity, Michael, um, to put on a grand final in the absence of being able to hold it in Melbourne. Uh, and there is a big, like a, a really um, fever pitch growing yeah. around this, this public event. So, uh, you know, it's a big thing and we've just got our fingers crossed that we can get through this. Yeah, Jeff, briefly before you go on that subject, I mean, sporting history, Australian sporting history is going to be made there on Saturday. Quite extraordinary to have the AFL grand final on the West Coast there in Perth. The sentiment in your city is what right now? Oh, uh, look, um, no one really believed it would happen until it happened, I guess. It's the second year out of Melbourne, of course, and it, that's, that's a tragedy for Melbourne with what's going on there. But Perth uh, is intent on making the most of it. There's usually daily events. There's, there's a lot of things going on around it, and that's just going to build like it does in Melbourne. Uh, it probably won't have the same feel there, but we certainly feel like we'll be hosting a fabulous grand final, Mike. Let's hope that COVID scare is minimal then. All right, Jeff Perry in Perth, thank you.
The United States has come under fire for the mass expulsion of Haitian refugees from Texas. Thousands of Haitians have been sleeping under a border bridge in that state as they try to illegally cross into the United States. Now, images of US Border Patrol agents on horses chasing Haitian migrants have drawn international attention in recent days. The Biden administration processed deportation flights carrying thousands of people back to Haiti, continuing a Trump policy which cited the COVID pandemic as a reason for expulsion. FBI investigators have confirmed that the body found in Wyoming on Sunday was travel blogger Gabby Petito. Her death has been treated as homicide, pending the results from the final autopsy. The search for her fiancé resumed today in Florida, with police extending their search to include alligator-infested swampland in a national park. And this is just happening in the last hour or so. Donald Trump is suing his niece and the New York Times newspaper over an article concerning his tax affairs. The former president alleges that Mary Trump breached a settlement which barred her from disclosing documents. The Daily Beast is reporting that Mr Trump is seeking damages of at least $100 million. Scott Morrison will spend a second day in Washington, D.C. today after insisting relations with China will not spiral further. The PM's comments echo Joe Biden's address to the United Nations, in which he touted cooperation over conflict. We are not seeking a new Cold War or a world divided into rigid blocks. The United States is ready to work with any nation that steps up and pursues peaceful resolution to shared challenges even if we have intense disagreements. I am confident that we can avoid uh, the conflict that we all want to avoid. Well, Taylor Aiken standing by in Canberra this evening. Taylor, hello. The PM attended high-profile meetings with both the US President and the British PM. Yes, Michael. Prime Minister Scott Morrison attending his first face-to-face -face bilateral meeting with US President Joe Biden in Washington, D.C. earlier today. Both leaders keen to tell the world the objective of this new AUKUS alliance is peace and security in the Indo-Pacific region and not inciting a war with China. Also on the agenda, climate change, with pressure building from world leaders for Australia to commit to net zero emissions by 2050, something that Scott Morrison has so far been hesitant to sign up for. But Scott Morrison was intent on keeping it light-hearted with British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, gifting him a packet of Tim Tams. But then it was straight to business, with the UK Prime Minister wanting quarantine exemptions for English cricketers ahead of the Ashes mm. in December. So pressure really from all angles for Scott Morrison. If there is a lot going on. Now, in the coming hours, the PM will head to Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. What can we expect there? Yes, he will. Scott Morrison is set to meet with congressional leaders tomorrow before a virtual world summit on the COVID pandemic. Chaired by President Joe Biden, it's expected he'll ask countries like Australia to commit to vaccinating 70% of the world by this time next year. The World Health Organization also calling for leaders to redirect booster shots to developing nations to ensure no one is left behind in the race to vaccinate. Michael? Right, Taylor Aiken from Canberra tonight. Thank you.
Showtime is fast approaching tonight for our COVID-hit entertainment industry in Melbourne and Sydney in anticipation of lockdowns soon ending. Smash hit musicals are lining up for their big reopening in Sydney, would you believe? In front of audiences next month, a rare thing lately. Network Finance Editor Gemma Acton's with me now. Gemma, good evening to you. This is exciting. Which shows are looking to reopen? Yes, it's great to talk about some good news on this topic after so much bad news. Well, Sydney is really lucky. Within a month and within two days of each other, we're going to get two of the biggest shows in town. So Come From Away is coming back on the 20th of October and Hamilton is coming back on the 19th of October. Tickets are already on sale if, yeah. you, if you are interested. Now they are able to open because we've got enough of a game plan from the New South Wales government. New South Wales government says once they get to 70% double dose vaccinations, uh, theatres can have 75% capacity provided everyone wears a mask and everyone is vaccinated who goes. It's much less clear the situation in Victoria. Um, all we know so far is that once they get to 80% double dose, so a higher bar to cross, uh, they'll be allowed 150 people, which might be fine for small performances. But if you take something at the moment, which is a, a big production in Melbourne, like Moulin Rouge, that's playing at the Regent Theatre, which has a capacity of more than 2,100 people. So right. 150 yeah. people is completely unviable from an economic perspective and very uh, dis disheartening for anybody there. Well, Melbourne has a few things going on, so that might become clearer in a couple of weeks. So let's fingers crossed for there. But it's millions of dollars lost for these productions in, in each of the cities. And, and I'd imagine behind the scenes, just for the operations of the venues themselves, it's millions more, right? It is. If you look at Hamilton, that's losing $2 million a week from being closed in Sydney. Uh, but it's not just the theatres that are losing money. You have directors, producers, makeup artists, set designers, costume designers, admin, marketing, and then everyone who thrives off the shows. So taxis, restaurants, mm. hotels, bars. Many people come to a city centre for a weekend because of a show and then base yeah. a weekend around it. So certainly uh, a lot of other industry players uh, thrive because of it. This may sound like a stupid question, but is a show like a business? Can it go broke? Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Uh, it depends what the investors want to do. Uh, many of them are, are really bleeding money. You're not going to get, for most performances, you're not going to break even until you're about 80-85% capacity. So even if mm. some are going to reopen in Melbourne, if their best option is around 50%, they could still lose a lot of money and it uh, just depends on what point they want to stop bleeding. But the best bet is to get going and get trading and, and get you know people in the seats and get going again, I guess. If you can. I think they're waiting yeah. for a little bit more clarity. Alright, so uh, Hamilton and come from away returning next month and hopefully that's just the start. I think so. It seems that there's enough of a roadmap in place to give some confidence to others. Uh, we know that uh, you're, you can already book tickets for Romeo and Juliet with um, the Australian Ballet for November. We haven't heard yet from Opera Australia um, or from the Sydney Theatre Company, but they've had a lot of productions cancelled, mm -hmm. and so we imagine they're going to come out with an announcement pretty soon. We're talking about the big productions, but I, and we'll wrap it up, but I just wonder how the smaller uh, production houses theatres are going. I mean, they're the, they're the lifeblood of, of that industry as well, not just the big stages. They must be struggling. Absolutely. It's been incredibly tough and they don't get the same uh, media no, they don't. As, as, no. as other ones do as well. So people don't often even know they're on. Sometimes these are one-man bands and these are people who've spent nine months of their life writing, uh, rehearsing, uh, doing everything for it and haven't seen a dollar come in. So, no, it's incredibly tough for smaller people as yeah. well. Keep a focus on them as well. All right, Gemma, thank you. Thanks, Michael.
Welcome back. There'll be plenty of Victorians and others in the nation's southeast who'll have a story up their sleeves remembering where they were and what they were doing when the state's biggest earthquake in 200 years hit. Joining me to have a talk about this and a few other things, tonight's panel is Dee Madigan. Good to see you again, Dee, and welcoming the Daily Telegraph editor, Ben English, as well. Ben, good day to you. Hi there, Michael. Now, Dee, I'll ask you first. Uh, you, I understand, were on a Zoom uh, when your colleagues were a bit rattled. Tell me about that. Yeah, so we have a morning Zoom and we have a, a Melbourne office, obviously, everyone's working from home. And um, my Melbourne colleague, he just started, he said, everything's shaking. And then he said, oh, it might be workmen in the street. And then he said, the neighbours have gone out. And he was talking about it. And then two of my Sydney staff, who are both in high rises in Sydney, yeah. in apartments, said, my apartment's shaking. And I've got to say, at that point, I got a bit scared because you thought, well, it can't be an earthquake in two places. I didn't realise... I didn't realise they could travel that far in terms of it. So it was just that second of like, oh, man. But, yeah, so yeah. all a little bit exciting for no, the look, start of the day. The quake and the aftershocks were felt far and wide across the southeast of, uh, of Australia there. Ben, I guess the Daily Telegraph office is always rattling with a bit of noise of some kind. Probably wasn't felt there, but it's going to be front-page news tomorrow still. Yeah, absolutely. But we'll be talking about all the disasters that are befalling poor old Victoria. You, you have to feel sympathy for them. I mean, yeah. everyone was already unsettled by what was going on. They must have felt like um, the whole world was ending this morning. That has certainly been the sentiment there. And I, I think, um, have I got it right, that your Warren Brown cartoon tomorrow captures a bit of that, doesn't it? With Dan Andrews sitting there, what next? Is it frogs and locusts next? <laughs> Yeah, and the frog and the locust are in the corner of the cartoon saying, yeah, we're on next. We're on. What I really do like about Australians is our sense of humour on those things. And it really does kick in. I heard some people say, oh, it's too soon to laugh. It's like, no, it's never too soon yeah. to have a bit of a smile. No one was, you know, seriously hurt. So let's take the laughs where we can get them at the moment. Ben, I tell you what, out of all of this, the one good thing out of this earthquake, even though it was felt far and wide and gave, uh, you know, people quite a scare, you know, across uh, three or four states, the general big damage was pretty minimal in the end. It was that one burger joint in, in South Yarra, I think, in Melbourne. Yeah, I mean, uh, like, to Dee's point, the fact that no one was killed uh, changes the complexion on the whole thing, or yeah. in fact that no one was actually hurt. Um, so we can have a laugh and we need a laugh. And, um, you know, the other thing we've got on our front page tomorrow, uh, Michael, is uh, the fireworks being cancelled at 9pm um, the 9pm fireworks being cancelled and then the, the uproar over that. Yeah. And I think that's indicative again of um, we, we have a deficit of fun at the moment and, um, you know, I think people need to have hope uh, to look forward to. And so it's this seemed premature for Clover Moore to cancel it 100 days out. I mean, she must be some sort of health oracle to know that it will be unsafe then. I thought that was ridiculous. I thought there was just far too much compliance this far out. But it looks like uh, we're thinking, is that what you're saying tomorrow, that the state government's going to kick in and still go ahead with the show? They're indicating that's what they're uh, contemplating. I wouldn't imagine that they dare not have it. It's ridiculous because the 9pm uh, fireworks, they're the ones for families. Um, and, and so to me it's smacked of a little bit of elitism that we'll have it for our little village for the 12 o'clock one yes. at midnight, but not for the 9pm one where, um, you know, you have the plebs coming from the suburbs. By, you know, December 31st, the vaccination rates will be, you know, as good as they're going to be. So what is the point of cancelling them? We can't cancel them forever. Like, it actually doesn't seem to make any health sense if they're saying, you know, at 80% we're kind of free. If people at that point are free to be getting on planes and travelling and sitting together and doing all those things, yeah. then put the bloody fireworks on. 
agree with you. Absolutely on that one. Back in Melbourne, though, the boss of the Shrine of Remembrance uh, has said in that city that he is absolutely appalled after the anti-vax mob scaled the memorial and they made that their, their sit-in place late this afternoon. Ben, police look powerless at points uh, in Melbourne. Is it time to up the level of force with these protesters? It's a tough one. Um, I think they've got to be very careful. I think the mood there is quite fractious. Um, I note that uh, the people who are cheering most against uh, the protesters are perhaps the, the Zoom crowd. They're the ones who uh, aren't affected as much as perhaps others are, the, the, the proles, if you like, the, the mm. workers. Now, I'm not suggesting for one moment that any of this was acceptable. It was, it was you know, horrible to, to, to watch, and particularly a sacred place like the Shrine of Remembrance. Mm. But I think the police have to be very, very careful, and I think uh, authorities have to be careful that they manage this in a sensible way. Uh, where it's possible to snuff these things out quickly and, and with as little trouble as possible, yes, go ahead. But I, I, I think they've got to be careful. Yeah, Dee, what have you made of the, the, the lockdown protests this week, and is that action really the right way to go about it? I actually have some sympathy for people who don't want a government telling them what they have to put in their bodies. I genuinely do, you know, I, but there's a whole lot of things happening with this pandemic where we have to do things we don't want to do. Um, I think people pretending to be tradies, and there was a lot of them, I've never seen so many clean high visits in my life, um, is rotten. I thought them dancing on the Westgate Bridge when 35 tradies lost their life there was really disrespectful. And I think somehow comparing themselves to fallen soldiers was pretty outrageous, mm. particularly since our Defence Force is one of the ma most vaccinated cohorts in the country. And in fact, to get deployment, you have to be vaccinated. So I think that, they, you know, while there are some legitimate concerns, you know, they haven't yeah. gone about the right way. But I've also noticed there's been some very silent voices. Had this been a left wing progressive march on, you know, at this place, the outcry from certain members of the right would have been huge and certain politicians, they've been very silent on this. Ben, that goes to the question of who the protesters actually are though, and I'm still confused about that. What's your take? Oh, look, I think it's an over, it was a way overblown, this sense that it was uh, members of the far right. I think uh, police have, have um, sort of, if not dismissed it, they've, they've downplayed that. Overwhelmingly, they were members of the CFMEU. Um, you know, the Age's own that's industrial not, reporter... That's not been proven at all. Well, the that's age, not well, true. The, 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 the media that just parroted the lines from Bill Shorten and um, Sepka that, it was, that, that these were infiltrators didn't bother to do their own research. The police themselves have said they have no evidence that there were there are outsiders amongst it. And as I said... What's your evidence to, what's well, your evidence to say they well, were I, from I, the CFMEU? I, I wasn't there, but I'm, I'm taking the word of a journalist who actually did look into a bit, and he's actually from a, a rival outlet, which is the Age newspaper, the Age's industrial reporter, said 80 to 90%, and he got that from a senior member of the CFMEU. So, um, you know, don't take my word for it, that's what he's saying, but irrespective of that, um, I think... There's no, no question that there were a lot of CFMEU people there. You, you, um, that you saw the insignia that they were wearing. They, they were wearing CFMEU outfits with CMFEU. Anyone can buy that. Well, you can't get it you at know, if you're a, But, Dee, do you think well, you they're all posers? Do, do you think they've all, they're all no, fake actors? I don't, or? Think, I don't think they are. I think there are quite a few tradesmen who are legitimately concerned and whatever, but there are also a lot of anti-vaxxers in there. There was a lot of Nike high tops. There was a lot of outfits there that have never looked like they've been on, you know, a work site. Yeah, but I think also the other thing is, just taking it back a step, um, the grievances of a lot of these tradies goes back to the treatment 
that they've had meted out towards them. Um, the, the approach in Victoria has not been one of collaboration between enterprise, private enterprise and, and the union move, and, and the workers. In, in stark contrast to New South Wales. In New South Wales, we're opening up to 100% construction worker participation as of Monday. And that, the reason for that is that they have high vaccination rates. And the reason they have high vaccination rates is that they haven't been dictatorial or, or condescending towards them. They've been actually working with them and actually inspiring them to come to a better oh, outcome. No, no, no. New South Wales construction sites have been closed down a lot more than Victorians have. They've actually had you know, a working group, D, D, they've had a working group that's been going for months that has been a collaboration between government, between private enterprise, the, the big construction firms and the unions. And the unions and the construction firms have been on a unity ticket and they've actually got very high vaccination rates to the extent that they've forced the government to change its hands. They have had 50%, um, they had 50% workforce participation rates which had to be lifted because there were too many sites that were being visited upon by workers who were vaccinated and they, they couldn't, they already hit their caps. So it's a, yeah, it, I think it's a tale of two cities in that respect. Victorian construction workers have actually had more of an opportunity to work than Sydney ones. Yeah, but the problem is that the protocols haven't been to the same standard as they have been in Sydney. What about both the positions of Victoria and New South Wales? The Premier's in both those states insisting that life is just going to be, you know, very different um, and unless you receive, if you don't receive a COVID vaccine. I mean, it, is it tough love? Is that the message that just has to get through, Ben? Uh, I don't think they'll be able to maintain that message forever. Um, I think that definitely it, it serves them now to um, encourage people to get vaccinated, but it introduces a lot of complexities. And I think that um, in the longer term, it's, uh, I think it's an incredibly divisive approach. Um, you know, I might be on my own in that opinion, but I, I actually don't think that it's a long-term solution to have um, people who can get access and or can get access to life and people who can't. Dee, what do you think? Is it having the desired effect of getting more people on the bandwagon for now or is Ben right, the message is going to run out sooner or later? It is to a point there is going to be a cohort who are not going to and at some point we actually have to deal with that. As I said, I'm actually deeply uncomfortable with mandatory vaccinations for this. It's different... Um, you know, when they're little children and it's life-saving, but for people here, you know, you can make an argument, you know, for, you know, personal, you could say, well, I'm healthy and whatever. And do you have a right to inject them to protect someone else? You know, there, it is incredibly complex. And I am actually, I'm, I would consider myself a lefty libertarian. People say you can't be that, but I am. <laughs> I don't think it's as simple as mandatory, but there are no. certain occupations. If you work in aged care, you should be yep. vaccinated, I think. Um, I think it's what fields. I would like is a situation where people want to get vaccinated, and I think that means dealing with a lot of the misinformation that's yeah. around would be helpful, and I think that would help if some of our politicians stopped spreading that information or that misinformation. Let's have a let's have a look at this because it was a little lighter. There was a nice moment, at least in New South Wales. Uh, kids allowed a friend bubble, uh, but only two mates. And I this posed a bit of a challenge in our household. <laughs> D um, choosing the bubble can be a little bit messy. Look, it can be, and also they have to be within a 5K radius or in your LGA. But I, I don't know, I have a very happy 16-year-old son who had his yeah. girlfriend over today and he was all big smiles. But the other two are sort of, yeah, trying to work out which two, because I'm sort of, you know, as I've said to them, they have to be yeah. the same two. And that does get, you know, when you've got complex little friend groups, that can be a bit tricky. Ben, there's no doubt kids needed a break in all of this. Is it a good thing? Oh, it's a fantastic thing. Yeah. And uh, I think 
this is, uh, again, it's a great approach to start rolling out little, little freedoms as, as, you know, as, it's, as is sensible. 5Ks is a little bit uh, limiting, but anything that we can get is great. And I, my uh, daughter had two friends over today. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, she's just a completely different person tonight. Um, we can't underestimate just yeah. the mental health benefits from um, these sort of initiatives. It was quite a turning point day today for anyone living in New South Wales, you'd understand it, or New Sydney in particular, but uh, there was a lightness in the house today. Ben, to your point, the kids were happy, yeah. really happy. Friends around, interacting, it was really good, and getting out and about and seeing them. And I think the lovely part of this, uh, from my point of view, was the, the kids who are now allowed to get together in their study bubbles if they're going for their HSC, the year 12 exams fast approaching, you know, they're able to get back in those study groups, two or three of them helping out in certain subjects. I think that was a good thing. Uh, I wish my daughter would be doing that. She's going to year 12 and there was no <laughs> sign of any study bubbles. <laughs> yeah, she's allowed to. You might oh, she's watching tonight. <laughs> yeah. ben, now, I didn't know about that and Mark got a year 11 just about to start year 12 next term and I'm going to be telling him all about it as well. Uh, well, don't blame me, both of you in <laughs> both of your households, okay? But that is the point of it as well. Dee, thank you for that. And Ben, great to have you with us. Pleasure. Cheers. Now, Gemma's back again with a look at the markets. Thanks, Michael. Markets in China reopened for the first time this week after a holiday break. And while they did close down, they certainly missed the brunt of the pain experienced by other share markets earlier this week. News that beleaguered Chinese property company Evergrande has reached a deal to stave off an imminent default helped regional markets. And after a mixed close last night with only the tech-heavy Nasdaq finishing higher, US traders are gearing up for a positive open tonight. And oil is pushing higher thanks partly to a spate of good news about more countries relaxing their restrictions on international travel. And the Aussie dollar inching very slowly higher, now buying around 72 and a half US cents. Michael. Thank you for your company this evening from the team here at 7 News. That is the latest. I'm Michael Usher. Have a good night.